Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you inspired scripture and that you meet us wherever we are at through your word. And you not only captivate our hearts, you change and transform our hearts so that that which was turned against you and away from you now desires to know you and to run toward you and to know you more. And so help us today, wherever we're at in the life of faith, to draw close to you through your word again and to become more like you by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's good to be with you today, have a baptism, and have the children up front. In the first service, I was seated over here, and it was just filled with children that service, and then filled with children in this service, and I was sitting there. And it just struck me that this is a powerful thing. Multi-generational church, people coming to know Jesus. This is the power of God at work in our midst for generations and generations. Heaven is meeting earth when we come to worship together. And it's just a joy and a privilege to do that with you uh, in God's word. You know, when we returned to America from Australia in June, I came back in one sense with only the shoes on my feet. That's technically not true because we had, you know, like nine luggages. Half of them are filled with stuffed animals. We've got, you got to bring them. You can't leave them behind. And, and, and then we've got, you know, a shipment coming over and all that. But in another sense, it was true because in Brisbane that year, there had been a really bad flood. And just after sloshing around Brisbane in every diff different pair of shoes that I had, they were total rubbish, so I had to throw them all out, save one pair, which was my Converse Chuck Taylors. Those are timeless shoes, but they're not good running shoes. And so as soon as we arrived in Virginia, I knew, I knew that I was going to have to undergo a terrible, terrible ordeal. I was going to have to go shopping for shoes and clothes. Now hear this, I'm a bit of a baby, but hear this. I would rather sustain seven root canals at the hands of a subpar demonic dentist than to suffer the pain of a single shopping trip. But alas, we made our way to Tyson Shopping Center and I found a multitude of stores. And after perusing for a while, a young salesman wearing really hip clothes and probably $300 sneakers came up to me and said, uh, can I help you? Can I help you start with anything? And I said, yeah, can you, can you just tell me, are the New Balance 990s, are those still a really excellent running shoe? And he just went, and then I knew something was up. He said, the New Balance 990s are a really excellent dad shoe. <laughs> and so what could I do? I bought the Asics instead, you know. Words are curious things. Suppose after I told you that story, suppose that you came up to me after the service and you said, so you bought uh, running shoes. What did you run for? Did you run for Senate? <laughs> or did you run for Congress or perhaps the PTA or something like this? A person can run a marathon, but they can also run for office. Only the context can tell us how the word is functioning, right? Words are interesting. In today's passage, we have a similar sort of situation. In 2 Peter 3, we're going to conclude our summer series by looking at the end of the world. Most of the time when we say end of the world, we mean the final destruction and decimation of the cosmos, right? But like run, end can have two different sorts of meanings, can't it? 
An end can be a conclusion of something, but the end can also be the goal of something, like the end point. And what we're going to find is in 2 Peter, the end of the world is both a conclusion and a goal. It's the conclusion of this phase of creation and life on earth, but it's also the goal of the redemptive plan of God for humanity that ends in nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth. You see, 2 Peter is not about the end of the world full stop. It's about the end of the world as we know it. Not about the total cessation of life, but about the final culmination of all that life is intended to be by God in a new heavens, in a new earth, where there will be no crying, no tears, no suffering, no decay, no pain, no death. Only fellowship with God forever in his infinite beauty and peace. As Peter works towards this end, though, he's going to bring us in light of knowing the end, along to two different areas. We're going to be brought to how knowing the end in advance helps us to deal with agnosticism and how knowing the end in advance helps us to do evangelism. So let's start with agnosticism. Agnosticism. It's a weird sounding word. What is that? Probably half the people that are agnostic wouldn't describe themselves as that. In fact, I was for many years agnostic, and I would have had no idea what that was if you said you're agnostic. It really means not knowing. I don't really know how things will pan out. Well, look at chapter uh, 3 in 2 Peter, starting at verse 3. If you want to turn in your Bibles there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. We're going to see sort of an ancient agnosticism. God doesn't know. God doesn't intervene. Hear what Peter says. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What are the scoffers basically saying here? Well, they're basically making the claim of deism at the Enlightenment or of contemporary agnosticism. You know, God might exist, but he's not involved in the world if he does exist. You know this view? He's like an absent God. He's a distant deity. He's sort of like, he's like a God who made the clock of the world and then just steps back and lets it tick. He doesn't get in and mess with the clock. And the agnostic would literally say, and even the atheist, where is he, Christian? Where is he? All the carnage in the world, all the injustice in the world, all the craziness in the world. If God is a God who intervenes, where is he? And that's exactly what they're saying to Peter. So we want to look at what Peter's response is, because that, that should be the heart of what our response is. So what does Peter say? Look at verses 5 through 7. He defeats or answers this idea that God is apathetic and not involved by saying in verse 5 that God intervened to create the world. So God intervened to create the world, verse 5. Then in verse 6, 
God intervened to judge the world through water at the time of the flood. And then in verse 7, God intervened to judge the world at the time of Christ's second coming, or he will intervene. Three different answers to that question. But you have to imagine that Peter's opponents then and contemporary agnostics would not be wowed by this argument. Peter's not, you know, he doesn't come in riding on a motorcycle and then have this big flashy PowerPoint and you're going to be convinced of this straight away. No, it's just calm, clear, confident teaching about the truth in the midst of people who are, let's face it, mocking him. And the word behind this is like making fun of him and just scoffing at him. Two things, to the agnostics that might be listening, either in the room, to the people who are unsure about God and don't consider themselves Christian, either in the room or online. What I want to ask you to do is say, don't be afraid to ask those questions. If Christians have beat you down when you've asked questions, actually you're the exact type of person we all hope to talk to all the time. It's good that you're here and you're allowed to ask those questions and you won't be demeaned for asking them. The other thing I want to ask you though is, is the idea of an absent God fulfilling the depths of your soul? I can't answer that for you today, but I want you to reflect on that this week if that's where you're at. Is the idea of a God who's distant fulfilling what is missing in you? Brian uh, just sang a song from Psalm 130. This is the essence of biblical faith. I'm just going to read this. Just listen to this. If you, O Lord, could mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And listen to the psalmist's inner heart for God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. If God exists and you're willing to go that far to say God exists, would God be that which is worthy of that kind of desire in you? And do you get that fulfillment from an absent God, from a distant God? Christianity is the only religion where the glory of God is seen in God, not staying away from the suffering, but running into the suffering and running to you wherever you are at to save you by his power and love. Consider that today and keep asking those questions. But be honest with yourself as you do that. To the Christian, as we look at Peter's way of responding, what's interesting is that when the mockers come, Peter does not adopt their tone. If you've ever been on YouTube these days, and I'm guilty of watching these over lunch, you will see the videos that first come up in the feed are what? They're the videos that are most popular. And they're usually like, so-and-so destroys the news anchor. You know, this argument destroys this other argument. And you're like, yes, okay, good. Get your sandwich and you're ready for a little entertainment. <laughs> Peter's talk to the scoffers would never have been labeled, Peter destroys the scoffers. This video would have gotten like five hits on YouTube. <laughs> Too often, though, because Christians want to take hold and make things happen, we adopt the anger of the culture. We're like cultural chameleons. Instead of looking to the calm demeanor of Peter who just answers with truth, we let the rage of the world become that which drives us in equal and opposite directions. We return anger with anger and our Jesus looks a lot more angry than holy. 
a lot more rage-filled than true. There are things to be angry about, but Peter responds to the mocking by calmly sharing the truth. We don't capitulate. We don't deviate from the gospel. We don't water down the gospel. Indeed, we double down on the truth. But when we do that, we do it in a way that looks like Jesus that's also faithful to the teachings of Jesus. Lest we take the beauty of the gospel and make it look really ugly to the world. We resist instead of responding in anger and outrage to responding in evangelism and outreach. And that's where I'm going to take you next in 2 Peter 3, turn to verse 8. Hear the word of God. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God's patience, Peter says, is not slowness. It's more like the buffer zone designed and superintended by God within which repentance happens on God's time in accordance with God's will. Now, this is tough for me. I don't know if it's tough for you. In every other area of contemporary life, we are accustomed to seeing results and quickly, right? I mean, my GPS died the other day coming down Arlington Boulevard. I, don't, I still don't know where I am. And I start yelling, Siri, Siri, what is wrong with you? Be efficient or else I will go to an Android device instead. It's going to happen. You know, we want this sort of efficiency with salvation and God's timing is not really our timing. And to be honest, I'd really prefer more of the infomercial timeline for salvation rather than a divine timeline. Now, I don't watch daytime TV anymore. Some of you may. But back in the 80s, when I was nine years old, they used to have these infomercials on. And whatever the product was, whoever was selling it, they would convince everyone in the audience of the fact that they needed this device, whatever it was, in about two minutes. You know those kind of things? By far, the best one that I ever saw, and you may disagree, you can come up to me after and we'll talk about it, in the 80s, and some of you may have this, was Ron Popeil's rotisserie chicken barbecue oven. You, some of you have it, right? Is it delicious? As a nine-year-old, I could barely operate a microwave. I wasn't even making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at that point. But in two minutes, Ron convinced me that I needed this rotisserie chicken oven. Okay? And like everyone else in that group. To this day, whenever I close my regular kitchen oven... I remember the tagline of that grill. Does anyone else remember that? You got to set it and forget it. Set it and forget it. And I say it all the time in my kitchen. It really annoys everybody. <laughs> Another one is, you know, the sham wow towel. It was this like super, you know what I'm talking about? It was this guy from Brooklyn and it was basically this super absorbent towel and he'd pour like a whole two liter thing of soda on the rug and then he'd just soak it all up with this towel. And all these people would be like, I can't have life without this towel. And he'd go, that's right. You're going to buy $20 worth of paper towels anyway. Why not make this one purchase of the sham wow? And you never have to buy paper towels again. It's like, I need the sham wow. Evangelism, though, according to God's timing, does not operate 
according to a five-minute set-it-and-forget-it type of system, right? Jesus is not a sham wow. The gospel is not even a product. It's about a person, and personal relationships take time. And Peter says that God's time is the perfect time for repentance because he has marked it out in advance and he sovereignly superintends it. We can't schedule God in on our Outlook calendar and ask him to sovereignly show up according to our schedule, even though we really want to. And friends, it's hard because the fact of the matter is most of us, I would venture to say probably all of us, have friends or family or loved ones who are all over the place in terms of their life of faith. And it's hard to abide with God's time when we want to push forward with our time and our success. But we know it to be true. I know it to be true. Maybe you do. When I was, before I was a Christian, for many, many years, I was evangelized by a pastor of a church in Boston. And can I tell you, I was not nice to this man. He was kind to me every day, brought me out to Kelly's Roast Beef on Revere Beach to get chicken fingers. He was kind to me. And all I do is make fun of Christianity, belittle him to his face, and say, Matt, what is with you in this Christianity? So ridiculous. So sad that you're not even strong enough to stand up in life on your own. You need this God. But Matt never turned his back on me. He continued to evangelize me through all of that. And then I came to faith because he didn't adopt a one and done, set it and forget it evangelism. He submitted himself to God's timing. He calmly trusted God. And the power of the gospel took root in my heart and caused me to be born again to a living hope. And this is what God does for us. So let us not give up on the lost and the, the seeking. The lost are not a lost cause. They're the lost sheep who Jesus has called us to go towards. And they're the lost sheep for whom Jesus has died. Obstinance is not necess necessarily an obstacle. It might be an on-ramp to evangelism if we just give God God's time and hold the tension in the midst of it. The gospel is the end of agnosticism. It's a, not about a distant God, it's about a present God. The gospel is about God's patience giving room for repentance in God's time. It's the end of evangelism as we know it. Evangelism is not a system or a product that humans devise. It's a long, obedient commitment to holding the tension in God's time. Finally, the gospel is the end of the world as we know it, resulting in nothing less than a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth that abides forever, world without end. Now, most people, if you turn to 2 Peter 3 around chapter 10, I'm gonna, I mean verse 10, that's where I'm going to reference next. Most people would read the sort of stuff we find in 2 Peter and say, that seems like the apocalypse, does it not? It seems like the end of the world. But apocalypse even is a word that we infuse to mean sort of just destruction. What it really means is giving sight to that which was formerly hidden. Giving sight to that which was formerly hidden. Now the truth of the matter is, whether the world implodes and explodes or whatever at the end of time, or whether it just sort of transforms, we don't really know. And 2 Peter could go in either direction. And so we don't want to be dogmatic where there's room in Scripture for disagreement about these things. But actually, that's not even the main point of 2 Peter. The main point, if you read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, is that when all the burning is done, when all the melting is done, 
when the earth passes away, what remains? What does it say remains? The earth and the works that have been done on it. When everything's destroyed, when all that destruction language comes to an end, what do we have? The works of humanity laid bare for God to judge. Even that language of passing away, when someone dies, we say they pass away as a euphemism. But in English, in English that makes sense. But in Greek, the word means something more like passing beyond its current state. Passing beyond the current state in which it exists into a new state. Think of it this way. Just as there was a resurrection of the body after the cross, there will be a resurrection of the cosmos after the judgment. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. Creation passing over into a new perfected state where it will never decay again. Behold, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the old has passed away, the new has come. And it's telling that in the book of Revelation, Jesus doesn't end by saying, well, that's all folks. And then it just fades to black with a sad violin playing. No. Thank you. It ends with Jesus saying, behold, I am making all things new. Wow. In this letter, though, Christians get to the end and they go, well, you know, I've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, but this is some scary stuff at the end. There's fire, there's melting, there's all this. What if God has changed his mind? I mean, I gave my life to Christ 10 years ago, but I've done a lot of bad stuff since then. I'm repentant, but not perfect. What if God changed his mind the last day and says, we, we don't want you in the kingdom, right? Is, is that a possibility? It, it's good to ask. Well, here's what Peter says. Peter holds the tension of the gospel. He doesn't give way to easy believism, but he also doesn't say, work your way to God through your own righteousness. He preaches like he did in chapter one, a gospel where we're saved by the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, not by our own good works. Yet Peter organizes this gospel of grace within a bigger symphony where the tension of sin is still there. Christians who pursue holiness, who walk imperfectly but faithfully in repentance, you can take heart. God's not going to change his mind about the declaration he made when he called you to himself. But that also isn't an excuse for us to be presumptuous and to sin boldly so that grace may abound. Or to sin boldly even in spite of grace. We have to keep our eye on holiness but recognize that the gospel leans into grace and that is your inheritance. If your heart, to tell you the truth, is examining itself and acting in repentance and faith, the fire at the end of times is not a punishing fire. It's a purifying fire. It's a perfecting fire. And the Bible tells us that the same fire that eternally punishes the wicked eternally purifies the repentant. In the book of Malachi, I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Chapter three, verses two through four. We hear about this purifying fire. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. 
He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. The Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord in the days gone by as in former years. We are made right with God to be made holy like God. And the fire of judgment exists and is real for those who presume upon God and who act in abject unholiness. But that same fire is the fire that perfects the saints for an eternity with him and a new heavens and a new earth. The end, the goal of the world is nothing less than a new creation. And righteousness dwells there forever. And in fact, it's not an ending at all. It's really an eternal new beginning. By knowing the end in advance, that helps us to address the false views of God that come up in the world that can never truly satisfy. By knowing the end in advance, that helps us to evangelize and to hold the tension in God's time rather than to force ahead with our time or to lose heart and thinking Maybe God isn't acting at all. With the end in view, we learn to see the world not in the dark shadow of its present brokenness, but with the radiant light of its future blessedness. And as we leave today and continue our worship as we leave this place, remember the words of Jesus in Revelation. Behold, behold, says the Lord, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to rush ahead according to our own clock, according to our own will, and according to what we think is right and good. But what we see in Peter is this kind of calm confidence in the midst of persecution that trusts in you that submits everything we have to your time, even when we don't understand the inscrutable ways and will and timing of God. And so we ask today that you help us in that. In our conversations with family members, in our broken hearts as we talk to those who have turned away from you, in our own struggles, we submit ourselves to the timing of God knowing that you who sow your word through us in the world will not let it return to you empty, but that you will accomplish that for which you purposed it and that its end is a new creation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.